Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and today I'm joined by Robert Alter to talk about his monumental translation of the Bible. Robert Alter is the class of 1937, professor of Hebrew and comparative literature at the University of California, Berkeley. He has written widely on the European novel from the 18th century to the present, on contemporary American fiction, and on modern Hebrew literature, and he's also written extensively on literary aspects of the Bible. Robert's been translating the Bible for more than 20 years, beginning with his translation of Genesis, published in 1996, and then the David story, where he translated 1 and 2 Samuel and part of Kings, which appeared in 1999. In 2004, Robert published the five books of Moses as a single volume, and then in 2007, the Book of Psalms, followed by the Prophets in 2013, leading up to the three-volume publication of the entire Hebrew Bible in 2018. In the course of his career, alongside his other work in comparative literature, Robert has written a number of significant books on the Bible as literature and the history of Bible translation. A few of them include The Art of Biblical Narrative from 1981, The Art of Biblical Poetry, which appeared in 1985, and then more recently, his 2010 book, Pen of Iron, American Prose and the King James Bible, and The Art of Bible Translation, which he published in 2019. I'm really excited to share this conversation with Robert about his translation of the Bible. It's really a tremendous achievement, and he brings his own particular sensibilities to the project as a literary scholar. It's fascinating to have the Bible translated by just a single individual, and as such, we can have a fascinating and wide-ranging conversation about the meaning of translation, the significance of Bible translation in particular, and what we get from a translation of the Bible that emphasizes the literary character and sensibilities of the biblical Hebrew text. If you enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll share it with a friend. You can find it online at jewishhistory.fm slash Bible, where there's also a transcript of the episode. You can find Jewish History Matters anywhere that you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and elsewhere. Again, thanks for listening to this episode, a conversation with Robert Alter about translating the Bible and why it matters. So hi, Robert. Welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. I want to start with a big question. You've spent two, three decades now working on a translation of the Bible. Right. And that's a long time. It's a, it's a very big project, a life's work in a way. I guess uh, one way for us to get started would be to think about this overarching question about why translation matters, you know, and translating the Bible in particular. Well, the vast majority of people who or interested in reading the Bible, of course, have no access to the original language. So they are dependent on translation. In uh, England and America, we've had multiple translations, beginning with uh, basically William Tyndall in the, the 16th century. Some of those translations have certain virtues. Um, I think Tyndall does, and the King James Version that followed him definitely does, although it has problems as well. In my view, the 
various translations done by denominational committees, including the Jewish Publication Society in this country, basically in the second half of the 20th century, have been disasters. I think that they get some important word meanings wrong, despite the, the fine philological training of the scholars who did them. But even more important, they are tone deaf to the fine literary articulation of the Hebrew. And I sad to say, I find that they, they are also tone deaf to English literary usage and even to English idiomatic usage. This means that the American and British reader who turns to any of these translations is getting a, a rather distorted sense of what the Bible is like. And it's my contention that the stylistic shaping of the Bible is crucial to its meaning. So it's not just icing on the cake, but it's the way the ancient Hebrew writers conveyed their vision of God and humankind and history and politics and human nature and so forth. Yeah, yeah I, th I think that the way that you're describing these other translations as disastrous is is really quite interesting. And I hope that we can dive into a bit this question, uh, maybe a little bit later, about what are the deficiencies of the other translations and how yours relates to that. But I want to maybe step back for a second to the implications and the significance of this issue, right? So when you talk about the the importance of doing a new translation that perhaps corrects some of these deficiencies and tries to look at the Bible from a literary perspective, why do you think that it matters to have a good translation of the Bible as opposed to the ones that you think are you know, deficient? I mean, obviously, it's, it's better to have a good translation rather than a bad one. But why does it matter so much that, that you wanted to correct or, or improve upon the previous translations? So I do think that the, the literary vehicle of the Hebrew is crucial in conveying what the religious vision of these writers is. So if uh, let me put it this way. Let's take the issue of rhythm. All good literary prose, certainly in all the languages I can read, has rhythm. Rhythm really is the beating heart of the prose. You take away the rhythm, then the heart goes dead, as with, with a human being. So imagine that a, um, the manuscript of Moby Dick falls into the hands of a zealous interventionist editor. So he says, this is a pretty good story, but I can fix it up. He goes systematically through the uh, manuscript, uh, and um, when Melville writes, the whale has no face, he says, that's not very dignified. I'll change that to the whale has no countenance. Now, by, by making these changes, our interventionist editor would wreck the, the beautiful cadences of Moby Dick, those wonderful iambic sequences that uh, remind you, or are supposed to remind you, of Shakespeare and of Milton, uh, and the cadences that, that uh, are reminiscent uh, of the King James Version of, of the Bible. 
You'd be left with a fairly interesting story about a kind of crazy whaler captain who's lost one leg and is obsessed with capturing this particular white whale. But the magic of Melville's novel, a book that sounds like King Lear, that sounds like Paradise Lost, that sounds like the Psalms, that that reaches up to the the, uh, limits of the cosmos in its vision, that would all evaporate. Uh, If you look at the modern translations of the Bible, you see arrhythmic prose in sentence after sentence. And what is important in the Hebrew vanishes. This, I think, gets at the heart of of what you've tried to do with the translation, which is to provide an avenue for the literary meaning of the text. And I don't mean to say that it's a non-literal translation, but you emphasize in the translation these aspects like rhythm and cadence uh, and so on. Uh, and I, I guess you know, one of the one of the questions here to think about you know, is why do you think that these aspects of the text matter so much when other translators have emphasized other aspects of the biblical text in their translation projects? Uh, Let me say, by the way, that my translation also is quite literal. I am fairly scrupulous about trying to get the, the exact shade of meanings of the Hebrew words. What I do not do is substitute an explanatory term for what the actual Hebrew says, which I think is one of the great sins uh, of um, modern translators. But now, to to address your question directly, maybe I I should give you an example. Uh, This would have to do with rhythm. In the first chapter of Genesis, the creation of the heavenly luminaries, the heavenly lights, is conveyed as follows. And I will first uh, say this in my own translation. And the great light for dominion of day and the small light for dominion of night and the stars. Now, the the Jewish Publication Society version reads as follows, and the greater light to dominate the day and the uh, lesser light, or maybe it's the smaller light, I don't remember, uh, to dominate the night and the stars. Now, I'd like to comment on that denominate for a minute. First of all, it's one of thousands of illustrations in all these English versions of a tin ear for English. To dominate should appear in a sentence such as, after the Second World War, the Soviet Union dominated the smaller states of Eastern Europe. It's not what what the the, uh, heavenly lights do to the day and the night. But there's something else at issue. To dominate the day, to dominate the night, wrecks a cadence in the Hebrew. The Hebrew sounds like this. And my version pretty much 
replicates that cadence, the great light for dominion of day and the small light for dominion of night and the stars. Now, why is that important? Rhythm, sound uh, are rarely adventitious aspects of any literary text. They reinforce meaning. So what meaning is reinforced here? Well, the priestly writer who is responsible for the first version of creation has a vision of creation rather unlike his predecessor, Jay, in chapter 2, has a vision of, of creation as orderly progression, as a series of harmonious acts enacted through divine speech. So that lovely cadence, that embodies his sense of harmony in creation. If you take away the cadence, you're diminishing his attempt to convey a harmonious vision of creation. So it's not decorative. It's part of the meaning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I want to emphasize right. um, a bit more this question about uh, why translation matters, uh, broadly speaking, in terms of our American or Anglophone culture, because, you know, this example that you just gave, uh, which is a great example about how to translate dominion or domination in the opening of Genesis, that comes from one of a whole series of books that you've written about translation and about the Bible. You know, this most recent one on the art of biblical translation. And there's another book that you wrote a few years ago uh, as well about the role of the Bible and of scripture uh, within English speaking or English linguistic culture. And that's Pen of Iron, right, where you're talking specifically about right. the King James Version. And one of the the key ideas there that you're emphasizing uh, in that particular book is the idea of America as what you term a scriptural culture, which seems to highlight for me one of the reasons why Bible translations matter, because you're talking about the way in which the translation of the Bible is a foundation or a bedrock for the development of uh, of American literature. This is another way in which I think we can talk about the significance of Bible translations. And so I was wondering if you maybe wanted to comment on that a bit about how you understand the history of Bible translation within the broader literary culture since the 17th century, essentially, uh, and why you see something like the King James Version, you know, which you also have talked about you know, and look, look upon very highly as a cultural cornerstone and when we think about this big question about why translation matters. Let's do a little thought experiment for a moment. Let's imagine that the King James Version was not actually what it turned out to be, but it was something like the um, translations that came out in the second half of the 20th century. That, that is, that, that it, it was stylistically inept, arrhythmic, mangling English idioms, switching levels of diction in the same sentence, and so on and so forth. One thing for sure would have happened 
the history of English literature would have been uh, very different. You wouldn't have had many great English and American writers writing in the same way. In America, you wouldn't have, have had Melville, you wouldn't have had Hemingway, we wouldn't have had Emily Dickinson, and so forth, or, or they would have been very different writers. So second thing, this is more conjectural. England and America were both believing Protestant cultures. Obviously not everybody was a believer, but uh, I think the uh, vast majority were. So the question is, would the Bible have played the same central role in our culture if the King James Version had been a wretched translation? I suspect it would not have. That is, people, because they were believers, would still have read the Bible. It was the Word of God and so forth. But um, it wouldn't quite speak to them in the same way. That is, uh, people wouldn't have ringing in the, the ear of their memory, yea, though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, etc. Et I think less of the Bible would have been internalized in the living Anglophone culture. Yeah, I mean, I think a, a follow-up issue is when you think about the role of a of a canonical translation, if I might call it that, like the King James Version, within the development of English literature or of American and English culture, how do you extrapolate from that in terms of your own thinking about the importance of Bible translations as significant cultural and literary touchstones, as well as your own effort to translate the Bible? So the, I'll slightly rephrase your question. That, that is, if we have a canonical version of the Bible, why should anybody do another version? In fact, years ago, when my translation of the Five Books of Moses came out, it got a long review in The New Yorker, which was rather mixed. Basically, the tack he took was, well, this may be all right, but why does anyone need a new translation of the Bible when we have the King James Version. So I will now say why, why one does. Obviously, there's one thing that's not in the least the fault of the King James Version, which is it's now more than 400 years since its publication. The English language has changed a good deal in uh, the, the last four centuries. But you could say, okay, we can live with archaism. After all, we still enjoy and celebrate the plays of uh, Shakespeare, which come from about the same time. There are a couple of other problems, uh, the, the King James Version. The knowledge of Hebrew among Christian Hebraists had been around for maybe a century at the time that, that uh, King James convened his committees. So the, the knowledge they had of Hebrew was rather imperfect. It was impressive in some ways, and those translators knew not only 
Hebrew, but Aramaic and Arabic, and of course, Greek and Latin. But um, there are all kinds of slips. I, I mean, I would say that, that uh, Rashi or uh, Avram Ibn Ezra had a, a firmer grasp of biblical Hebrew than the King James translators did. So th there are a lot of small slips. There are some real howlers. Maybe the the uh, the most egregious one of all is in chapter three of uh, the book of Job, where we have those who rouse their mourning. M o u r n i n g is a total mistake for Leviathan, which means, of course, Leviathan, and it's a mythological image, but they construed it also getting the, the the grammatical ending the suffix wrong they uh construed it uh, as uh, levaya which isn't even a, a biblical hebrew term but a rabbinic term meaning uh funeral so there were those mistakes and then there are mistakes that reflect either a deliberate christian bias or um an excessive influence of the Vulgate, which also is a Christian translation. The, the Hebrew nefesh, uh, which means life breath, life, and by extension, throat, that is the passageway of the life breath, and it can even mean appetite, and it can mean person, but it never means soul, because there's no concept of the soul and the soul body split in the, the Hebrew Bible. And you have soul all over the place in the King James. So the, the, there are those errors in construing the Hebrew that uh, need correction. But I would add this. In certain ways, the King James Version is a, a very impressive literary achievement. And I think it's actually better in the prose. This may surprise some of your listeners, than in the um, poetry. Because in the prose, it follows the contours of the Hebrew syntax. And it also respects the Hebrew adherence in the prose to very simple words, to so a kind of primary vocabulary. Say in the flood story, the King James has, and the waters were over the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and the ark went on the face of the waters. So we have was and went. Whereas uh, the, the modern translations, impairing the, the stylistic dignity of the Hebrew, have float instead of went, and uh, various verbs for coming down in torrents instead of was. So uh, that's very good. And by following the uh, system of parallel clauses connected by and, what's called parataxis in uh, the Hebrew, they get something of the sweep and the cadences of uh, the Hebrew, not invariably. Mm -hmm. um, I think that there is a certain fondness for words like iniquity, which are polysyllabic and uh, not at all fitting to the stylistic decorum of the Hebrew. Now, in the poetry, there are some great lines of poetry 
in the 17th century version. But then there's some wretched lines. I don't think they were listening to the sound of the Hebrew that much. Mm -hmm. Uh, My suspicion is that, by and large, Hebrew was an ancient language to be deciphered from the printed page for them. You repeatedly find there are lines that, that seem to stretch on forever that have 17 words for three or four in the Hebrew, and that have no rhythm at all. So one of the things that I did in translating Hebrew poetry was to try to find stratagems in English for conveying or simulating the compactness and the rhythmic power of the Hebrew poetry. As good as the King James Version is in a lot of ways, I think there was much to be done, and I tried to do it. Right. And I think that you are bringing up a whole range of really interesting issues relating to the King James Version, in particular relating to Bible translation more broadly. We have this very curious situation where, on the one hand, the King James Version is uh, you know, a, a truly significant text in terms of the development of English literary culture. And as you've written about extensively, it's been quite significant in terms of the formation of modern English, both in terms of the language itself and also literary output, books, you know, et cetera, et cetera. At the same time, uh, English has changed quite a bit over the course of 400 years, uh, as sure. we'd expect for basically any language. The, the the elements of the biblical style that you've talked about, you know, the limited vocabulary, for instance, proves a problem for the modern reader, you know, where we're kind of more used to a more expanded vocabulary. Other elements of the style, like parallelism, you mentioned before also parataxis, the use of, uh, you know, the vav of and, you know, in so many ways. You know, these are unfamiliar to readers, essentially, uh, today. And so what ends up happening in the translations is that they kind of feel the need to reformulate the prose so that it's more intelligible, so to speak. And so when we look at some of the criticisms that you have for the more recent translations, it comes down to these debates about what is the role of the translator. Is the role of the translator to meet the expectations of the reader, right? Is the goal of the translator to provide a literal translation of exactly what the text is without making any compromises whatsoever? You know, I mean, if we think about someone like Walter Benjamin, you know, in his writing about translation, you know, he writes about and thinks about the idea of finding an echo of the original in the translation. And I mean, it seems to me that that this is closely related to your perspective on translation, you know, that you are trying to give the reader a sense of the Hebrew, even if they are not familiar with the original text itself. Let me first say something about what may be intelligible to the modern reader. I think that the the modern translators have gotten it all wrong. Let me begin with parataxis, clauses strangled together with and, with no explanatory connectives and syntactic subordination, no because, therefore, um, however, uh, since, etc. It's true that this is not the prevalent way of putting words together 
in modern English, but it is out there in the literary prose, which, as far as I can tell, the, the modern translators have not read. Cormac McCarthy often has long paratactic chains reminiscent of the Bible. The greatest piece of extended prose poetry written in the English language in the 20th century is almost certainly Molly Bloom's soliloquy in the last section of James Joyce's Ulysses. And that is predominantly parataxis. Molly is repeated saying, and, and, and. So to begin with, the assumption that a modern reader just can't manage reading parallel clauses like that seems to me clueless. But let me give you another example. Uh, I said before that, that uh, a besetting sin of modern translations is to substitute explanation for translation. Instead of laying out what the original says, they tell you what they think it's supposed to mean. Uh, there is a kind of crazy assumption among modern translators that readers cannot understand metaphor. And we use metaphors all the time in common speech, uh, throw in the towel, over the top, off the rails, and, and, and so forth. You find metaphors rooted out and um, substituted for by uh, explanatory paraphrase. For example, when Joseph, unrecognized by his brothers, accuses them of being spies, he says, to see the nakedness of the land you have come. That's how I translate it. The modern version, in this case, not the JPS, although the JPS does this kind of thing elsewhere repeatedly, say something like, you have come to spy out the weak points in our defense, because that's what they think the nakedness of the land refers to, which it may, but it may refer to other things as well. Of course, uh, there's an enormous loss in substituting an explanation for the metaphor. The, the metaphor, of course, is sexual, and it's language associated in the Bible with sexual taboo. You shall not see your mother's nakedness. The metaphor has a kind of potency because of its uh, sexual background. You know, the nakedness of the land is something which should never be exposed to the eyes of strangers. Maybe there's even an oblique reference on Joseph's part to uh, uh, some kind of violation of his mother, Rachel, by his brothers who, who are not the sons of Rachel. Again and again, the power of the original is deflected by not translating the metaphor as a metaphor. One of the things that comes across as we get into these issues and some of these examples about the translation is that it really demonstrates your own influences and your own background. You come to the translation of the Bible from 
a literary perspective as opposed to a philological one. Right. You know, how do you take you know all of these influences of your own uh, in terms of how you think about the translation of the Bible as a project on a larger scale? Of course, I'm a literary person. And were I not a literary person, I, I wouldn't have done it in this way. And I guess you could say I would never have done it. Let me say something about my being a literary person and the intrinsic nature of the Bible. The culture of ancient Israel is in a way rather anomalous. If you think of the geographical and cultural map, you have this little sliver of a country sandwiched in between um, great imperial powers, and uh, those empires had really impressive material cultures. You know, you think of the pyramids, you think of the ziggurat, the exquisite Egyptian art, breathtaking Syrian base reliefs, and so forth. Ancient Israel had very little like that. Visual art, for example, in ancient Israel was, with very few exceptions from what archaeologists have uncovered, it was uh, kind of limited to stick figures. So the, the anomaly is that this culture produced great writers, poets who adopted the formal system of Syro-Canaanite poetry. We, we know from uh, the, the, the Ugaritic texts now, but uh, totally eclipsed their predecessors and produced the breathtaking poetry of the Book of Job, uh, the, the uh, soaring poetry of Psalms, uh, the, the beautiful love poetry of, of the Song of Songs, and so forth. It's perhaps even more striking in the prose narratives, where, where um, they not only totally eclipsed all their neighbors, but they uh, innovated formally. They developed whole sets of uh, narrative conventions that enabled subtle developments of character and plot and uh, situation. Now, what this means is that in order to see what's really going on in these texts, you have to understand what they did with poetry, the, the formal shaping of the poems, the techniques and conventions and style of the, the prose narrative. And this is not something that's imposed on the text by somebody who happens to have a PhD in comparative literature, as I do, but it's something there in the text that the biblical scholars, for all their really impressive and admirable learning, have not at all seen. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I'll give you a, a, a little personal anecdote. Many years ago, when I first became interested in biblical narrative, I taught for the first time, but not, not at all the last time, uh, a graduate seminar on biblical narrative at Berkeley, reading the narratives in the Hebrew. 
it went very well. And after three or four weeks, I realized that the group and I were developing this sense of excitement that we were somehow moving into virgin territory. I kind of stopped myself short and I said, how could this be virgin territory? After all, the, the libraries are, are filled with, with uh, books on the Bible, all kinds of learned scholarly studies of the Bible. What I concluded was that these were a new set of questions that hadn't been asked and it turns out were important to ask because they were intrinsic to the nature of the, of the biblical text. So right. what I consider myself to be is lucky, that I'm lucky that I'm somebody who was trained in literature and has a literary sensibility because, in fact, that has enabled me to see certain things in the Bible and about the Bible that had not been seen before. This question of the Bible as literature is really important. We've talked extensively about the the way in which you've tried to translate not just the words, but the aesthetics of the biblical Hebrew. And then also at the same time, right, also as someone who was a major part of the turn towards the literary study of the Bible in the 80s and the 90s, it's very significant to think about your perspective on the Bible as a literary text, as opposed to, say, a historical text, right, which might be the perspective of, of, of a philologist who would focus more on uh, the meaning of the specific words within the historical context of the ancient Near East, or a scholar of religion who would focus more on the way in which you try to convey the religious and theological meaning of the text, or alternately for someone who's composing a translation for a particular religious audience that has a particular aim in, in in doing their translation to a particular towards a particular theological or religious end. What what I was thinking about as I was looking through the text, as I was even just looking at it and thinking about the way in which it is presented, you know, if you look at the 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 layout of the text, and you know, this goes back even to your original translation of uh, of Genesis uh, from the '90s, the way that it was laid out on the page was without the the verse numbers in line is like along the side of the page. Uh, and, right. and that seemed to me as indicating this idea of the text as a literary object in and of itself. That's right. What's interesting here, as we think about this question of why it's important to translate the literary aspects, not just the words and not just the meaning, how has your understanding of the Bible and its literary artistry affected how you translate it? And also why you think that a literary sensibility is important for thinking about the Bible. Let me comment on one issue you raised, which is philology. I actually, in the, the course of, of, took me 23 years, 24 years, uh, translating the Bible, have become a big fan of philology. I think it's a very exciting activity. The fact that I was focusing on the literary vehicle of the Bible does not mean that I was dismissing philology, but on the contrary, in many instances, not invariably, but in many instances, it, it, it meant that I was doing philology in a somewhat different way, in a way that I think it needs to, to be done. That is, a familiar route when you uh, 
as a scholar come to a biblical text and you find an unusual word or something that perplexes you. So you look at the possible Hebrew etymology, you look at Hebrew cognates, and then you begin to look at cognates in other Semitic languages, in Ugaritic and Akkadian and so forth. The literary context of words often give, even difficult words, rare words, often gives you a clue to their meaning. And uh, I, I found that in numerous cases, and, and I find that um, the biblical scholars don't pay attention to those contexts, and so they often miss the boat. One of the questions that that I'd, I'd like to press you on here is why it matters. You know, when you say that the philologists kind of miss the boat, uh, perhaps, and that, that you want to bring a different way of thinking about the biblical text. What I share with the philologists is a a notion that we want to get to what the the biblical words really mean, right? Um, If you don't uh, get uh, what they mean, then you're missing things that are going on in the text. So uh, I will give you one example. Um, In the Samson story, uh, Samson has a wager with the 30 Philistine wedding guests that um, if they solve his riddle, he will give each of them a khalifat begadim. And the meaning of that is clear. It it means a change of garment. when he finds out that they have wheedled from his wife the, the solution to the riddle, he's enraged. And he goes down to Gaza, and he kills 30 Philistines, and he takes from them their chalitzot. It sounds rather like chalifot, but the middle consonant is the Hebrew letter tzadeh and not the Hebrew letter peh. Uh, that it's a it's a t sound rather than an f sound. Well, all the translations, including the King James uh, version, uh, render this as they figure. Well, it must be a synonym for change of garment, so they render it as garment, tunic. Uh, uh, one modern version, for some reason, mysteriously calls it belt. I don't even think they wore belts in the ancient Near East, and so forth. I thought, that can't be right. And um, I looked at uh, one of my great philological guides is a Hebrew concordance to the Bible. So that noun occurs only one other place in the Bible. It occurs in uh, 2 Samuel during the civil war between the house of Saul and the house of David after Saul's death. Abner, Saul's general, is being pursued by Asael, the swift-footed Asael, and he knows he cannot run him. He doesn't want to kill him because he knows that will make bad blood between uh, him and Asael's rather murderous brother, um, Joab. So he says, turn you to the right or to the left and strike down one of the lads and take his chalitza. 
And again, the modern versions say tunic, garment, uh, or whatever. I said, that is not right. Uh, we know from Homer, what, what does a warrior take from his plain foe on the battlefield? He doesn't take his tunic. He takes his armor. And then it occurred to me that, that this root of chalitza is also the verbal stem of chalutz, which means military vanguard. So the chalitzot were the, maybe the special kind of armor that uh, the fighters in the chalutz uh -huh. in the vanguard were wearing. Well, what difference does this make in the story? It makes actually an important small difference. Th that is, the, the wager was for 30 changes of garment. What does Samson do? He goes down to Gaza. He doesn't kill 30 ordinary Philistines. He's, he kills 30 Philistine warriors and takes back to the wedding guests something far more valuable uh, than garments. He take, gives them 30 sets of armor. But it's also a veiled threat. He says, look what I've done. I've killed 30 warriors, so you guys better watch out. Uh, one point in the whole story changes when you get the uh, meaning of the word right, and the meaning of the word is given to you by the other literary context in, in which that uh, noun occurs. What's interesting here is when we talk about why translation matters uh, and why uh, it's significant to uh, get it right, so to speak. And, and in a certain way, this perhaps betrays my own perspective as a person who focuses on modern history. Uh, I'm not a philologist or a biblical scholar myself in terms of my own training and background, but that when we think about translations and when you get one word or phrase wrong, so to speak, it can have tremendous repercussions in terms That's of right. the social impact of the translation uh, on the society that that reads it, consumes it, and then uses it as a foundation for the way they look at things. In one of the more infamous examples, and this is not really an example of the English translation, so to speak, but if you go back to the Vulgate, uh, there's the infamous translation of Moses's uh, carne or in the Hebrew, which they translate as his horns. Uh, right. And we see the representation of this in uh, Michelangelo's statue sure. of Moses. This is tied in a certain way to medieval anti-Jewish stereotypes and views. You know, when you have in the Latin translation that Moses had horns, whereas the Hebrew really means beams of light is perhaps another way to translate it. You know, we can see the social impact of this translation uh, over a very large realm of time and uh, and place. And of course, another famous example is uh, the Alma will uh, conceive and bear a son in Isaiah, where um, uh, Alma means young woman, and in fact, it, it's its use in uh, Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, suggests that it, it's a sexually active young woman and famously coming through the uh, Septuagint, this was translated as virgin, and there you have the virgin birth, which is uh, quite a shift. And this gets back to this this issue that we were just discussing about the the use of the Bible, so to speak, and, and the use of translation. You're only the most recent of many, many people to translate the Bible. 
And I'm curious if you maybe want to situate your work uh, in terms of the history of Bible translation. And one thing that 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 interests me in particular you know, is that if we look at the major translations uh, into Greek, Aramaic, Latin, English, you know, German, and so on and so forth, uh, translation, you know, is not really just about making the information or the source text available. You know, it's also a, a point of cultural contact. I, I think, uh, you know, do you maybe want to comment on this and where you see yourself fitting in and and your own sense of the translations of, of the translation's cultural significance? Okay. Previous translations, of course, have all addressed the the um, confessional needs of a particular community of faith, whether Jewish, Protestant, or uh, Catholic. I have not had in mind any community of faith. And in a way, what I've discovered, happily, I think, is that my um, translation bridges different communities. So th- that is people who just are interested in the, the, the Bible as an important ancient text or per, perhaps an ancient literary text uh, and maybe perfectly secular have been interested in, in my translation. But then rather to my surprise, I've discovered through email correspondence over the years and particularly since my, my big translation came out, it's, been embraced by many believers of different denominations, uh, Catholics, Episcopalians, Presbyterians, even Methodists, and uh, modern Orthodox Jews. So it's something that that pleases me. I think that there is some kind of hunger to get back to the Bible in um, in a guise that, that, that... gives a better sense of what it is really like in the original. I think there are a handful of things that are particularly interesting when we look at your translation. When we look at so many of the translations of the Bible have been done by a committee, right? You know, the King James Version, you know, that's 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 what it was. Uh, you know, many of the, the, the contemporary translations, as well, even the Buber and Rosenzweig translation, you know, it was done by two people because in a certain way, it's too much work for one individual. And it's something that you've been doing for over 20 years. Something that, that that I'm curious about from your perspective is what do you get from doing it yourself as an individual as opposed to by a committee? And also, you know, when we look at the fact that you've done it for such a long time, how is it that your approach to translation has changed over time? Okay, I'll begin with the, the, the end part of your question. I don't think it's changed. I mean, what happened was that when I did Genesis, I, after a while, felt that I hit a certain style, which had to be modified for different uh, uh, biblical sources and different biblical texts, but a, a basic style, and I, I went with it. Maybe I perfected it a little bit over time, but there it was. Uh, Less so in Genesis for poetry, because there's a limited amount of poetry in Genesis. But once I got to Psalms, I kind of honed my skills on in translating biblical poetry and found ways to tamp down the English language to get the rhythms of the Hebrew to some extent and uh, I think without having translated Psalms, 
I could not have translated uh, the greatest uh, challenge uh, in biblical poetry, which is the the, uh, the book of Job. Now, remind me of the first part of your question. Oh, about uh, translating as an individual versus as a committee. Oh, yes. Well, that's easy. I'm always a person who is like to work alone. Uh, I guess the, the two very limited pieces of collaboration I've done in my entire now long career is that long ago I did a critical biography uh, of Dandal in collaboration with my wife, Carol Cosman. But basically we agreed I would do all the writing. We would simply sit down and discuss how each chapter was going to be handled. And then she would read my drafts and we would talk about them. The other limited collaboration was with uh, the eminent British literary critic uh, Frank Kermode. We put together a volume of essays with multiple contributors called The Literary Guide to the Bible. And Frank and I sat down together and wrote a joint introduction, uh, which went very well. But I've always liked working alone. I think it gave me a certain advantage in more because I didn't have to negotiate with other committee members. I didn't have to come up with inconsistencies reflecting different constituencies within the, the committee. So I'm happy I did it that way. One final thing that I would want to ask you about and get your perspective on, you've talked a, a fair bit about the deficiencies of the of the other modern and contemporary translations. What do you think that it means to create a new translation for the 21st century. And I guess another way to put this is, what do you think about your translation and what it says about and how it relates to, uh, you know, not necessarily the other translations themselves, but the state of religion and literature in contemporary America into which you're producing this work? Well, very briefly, I I, I think that Doing a translation that has more fidelity to the literary values uh, of uh, of the Bible seems to be something that speaks to people in the 21st century. That as I infer this from uh, all the fan mail I've gotten and from the reviews of my translation. And I would add the following, uh, and this will be my final remark, that... that uh, the 20th century versions tend to assume that you need to make the Bible accessible by converting it into modern English in the idioms, in the syntax, and so forth. I feel that without being excessively archaizing, that one has to aim for a style that has a certain timelessness to it that, that doesn't sound as though it was written the day before yesterday, but a while back. And um, I think by and large I've succeeded in that and that um, readers have responded to that. So l- let me conclude with that. All right. Well, thank you so much. Okay. Nice talking with you, Jason. And thanks to you for listening to this episode. Until next time. I'm Jason Lustig, and thanks for listening to Jewish History Matters.